Everybody, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles or to open your phones, your tablets, whatever you need to, and get to Revelation chapter 3. Continue our study through the seven letters to the churches, and now we find ourselves on, on the fifth letter. And so we're still listening, we're still learning about what Jesus had to say to these seven churches, but we need to understand that these letters are as relevant today as they were when they were very first written. So therefore, as we continue our study, we must not look at these as though they're some ancient relics. On the contrary, we need to be looking at these letters as though they are mirrors in which we see ourselves. In my relatively short time since I've been here, it's only been about, I guess, nine months now, it feels a lot longer. I don't mean that negatively. <laughs> that sounded really bad. I, I mean, wow, I, if I could rhyme that back and like... It does, it feels longer. It didn't take a long period of adjustment for me to, before I felt settled in and at home. I felt that way from the moment I arrived here. And this nine months of just living life and and leading and, and serving among you. I have to say, up to this point, as I was studying for this message, I'm afraid that from my nine months of observations, I'm afraid that this is the letter that might ring most true to our church right here, right now. And I, and I hope that as we go through these letters, that you look at way. And, and, and I said this, have you ever seen a church or ever been a part of a church that was either dying or was dead completely? Anyone? I'm talking about a congregation that was just completely lifeless. Maybe a church that was satisfied within itself, or perhaps even a church that was resting on its past history and trying to reflect on on the good old days while never producing any new and current fruit in their lives at that point. I want you to know that Sardis is, is this kind of church. Sardis was a church that had an excellent reputation. It was a church that was highly respected within its community, but Christ looks upon that church and said, lifeless, dead. Uh, let's look at it together, okay? Let's, let's kind of go here a little bit this morning. So we begin in, in chapter 3, verse number 1, and the first thing that we're going to see are some characteristics of the one that sends this letter. And, and so in verse number 1, it says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We'll stop right there. Jesus makes reference to Two distinct characteristic traits about himself. He's the one that has the seven spirits of God, and he's the one that holds uh, the seven stars. And so let's kind of try to understand what he's saying here. What are the seven spirits of God? Or some of your translation might read the sevenfold ministry uh, of, of the Spirit. So, so what is he saying when he says the seven spirits of God? I want you to understand that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. 
In fact, turn with me back in your Bible. Go to John chapter 14. It's not going to be on the screen. But go to John chapter 14 real quick. What's interesting to me, at least, is that in John chapter 14, John writes about seven different functions of the Holy Spirit. I want to read those through for you real fast. In John chapter 14, I'm going to begin in verse number 15. And then I'll go back and I'll show you the seven functions, okay? So beginning in verse 15, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, uh, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me uh, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it? that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the world that you hear is not mine, but the Father who has sent me. Verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it takes place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Arise, let us go from here. In this lengthy section on chapter 14, we see seven different functions of the Holy Spirit. Just, I'll just highlight them real fast. In verse number 16, we'll see that the Holy Spirit is the helper or the comforter. In verse number 17, we see it as the spirit of truth. In verses 18 through 20, we see the Holy Spirit functions as the personal presence of Christ. And then in verses 21 through 22, It's the special manifestation of Christ within a believer. And then you see in verses 23 and 24, it is the abiding presence of the Trinity. You get to verses 25 and 26, the Holy Spirit's the teacher. And then in verse number 27, the Holy Spirit is the peace of God. 
Now this next verse will be on the screen behind me. Because some commentators believe that when it's mentioned the seven spirits of God, that he's talking about the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit that's listed in Isaiah chapter 11, verse number 2. There it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So here, the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord, it's the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of fear. Now now take both of those, John chapter 14, Isaiah chapter 11, and then add to that the fact that the number seven itself often represents completeness. Represents wholeness or perfection. And so the seven spirit means ultimately the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness, in all of its perfection. So Jesus says he has the, the fullness of the Spirit of God. Not only that, the other characteristic is that he holds the seven stars. Now go back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. In John's original vision of Christ, we see that the seven stars were identified as the angels to the seven churches. Look back in chapter 1, verse number 7. I'm sorry, verse number 20. So chapter 1, verse 20 says, And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, He says very clearly, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So so we already discussed all the way back in week number one that the angel of the church was the messenger, was the physical messenger, most likely a pastor or the spiritual shepherd for the church. So therefore, the seven stars equals the seven angels, which equals the seven pastors. So here Jesus is saying only Jesus having the seven spirits, meaning the complete and perfect Spirit of God, only Jesus holding the seven stars or the the seven pastors of the seven churches, only Jesus is the one who is able to say what it is He's going to say. Only Jesus is the one that's going to be able to command what He's going to command. Only Jesus is the one that's going to provide what He says He's going to give. Therefore, we must pay very close attention to the message of our Lord. And so I want you to notice the compliment that this church receives. You look long and you can look hard, but you're not going to find one. This church receives no compliment from Jesus. This church, much like we'll see in a couple weeks in the church of Laodicea, are the only two churches that received no compliments from our Lord. He goes straight into criticism, back to verse number one. It says, and to, the angel, and to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has seen the seven spirits of God and, and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. So the complaint that Jesus launches against this church 
is that its reputation is faulty. Others may look upon this church as a church that is active, a church that is alive, but Jesus knew differently. Jesus looked beyond the busyness of the congregation and saw that it was lifeless, that it was on the verge of complete death. To others, it was a reputable place. It had all sorts of programs, ministries, activities. It had a great reputation within its community. Other churches most likely looked at this church as an example to follow. Most likely the church was well attended, was well liked. Probably it was a busy church full of good fellowship. It had the deeds and doctrine in place. It had all the ministries and activities that one could think of. But Christ looks upon the church beyond its works and says, I see a congregation that is largely lifeless and dying. What does that mean? What does that mean for us today? Why would I say, of all churches, this is the one I'm afraid might be the one that most accurately describes us? How can you tell if you're in danger of becoming spiritually lifeless yourself? Consider some of these questions. Have you lost the interest and zeal for witnessing to the lost? Who's the last lost person you've ever shared the gospel with? Have you lost the, the, the excitement and the willingness to engage in conversations with the lost and dying world that lives all around us? Have you lost that, that interest, that zeal, that excitement for, for serving one another? We got a lot of servants in this church we got a lot of people who don't engage in ministry anywhere as well. So have you lost your interest and your excitement for that? Are are you anxious to to serve one another and and to see each other grow in their faith and maturity with our Lord and Savior? I mean, for me, a church this side should have more willing bodies than we have opportunities to plug them into. We are filled with just need after need after need. And maybe we're not doing a really good job of painting the picture of those needs, and so that will be on me. I'll take that responsibility. I'll take that fault. I'll work on helping to fix that issue. But it makes no sense to me why we would have little children in a Sunday school classroom and not have enough adults that are in that classroom to teach them the message of how much God loves them. Makes no sense why we can't get an adequate number of nursery workers to provide care for our, our little babies so mom and dad can, can sit in a worship service or attend a, a marriage enrichment class and, and not have enough volunteers willing to say, man, I'll serve, I'll do that, I'll hold a baby, I'll change a diaper. We have needs all around us, and so we'll do better. I promise you, we'll do better about communicating those needs. 
But the reality is, as a child of God, we have all been equipped by God with a special spiritual gift. And that gift is supposed to be used and exercised for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. So what is your gift? How are you using it? And if it doesn't fit within a mold that we have in place here, then we'll figure that out and we'll create the ministry opportunity so that you can use your spiritual gift in a way that honors and glorifies God. Other questions to consider. Have you become more formal in worship instead of being alive in Christ? Do you just come and stand where you're supposed to? Sit when you're supposed to? Do you go through the motions of worship? Are you fully engaged in it? Other questions. Man, I wish you could see what I could see right now. No, I don't. Never mind. Some of you are checking out on me already. Hang in there. Come on. Do you attend worship services or Bible studies out of sense of religious obligation instead of hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Do you sit through the service week in and week out half asleep? Or you allow your mind to wander on other activities or other things in your life instead of focusing on the life-changing power of the Word of God. I mean, if, if we're not careful, we're just going to doze ourselves out into a stage of spiritual death and decay. I want you to notice the command that our Lord gives to this church. Look at verse number 2. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, uh, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So the command that he gives is first and foremost to wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains in you. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and remember what you have received and what you have heard. In other words, remember the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the good news, the good news that you've heard, the good news that you continue to receive. May you understand that Christianity is not a one-time decision It is a lifestyle relationship. It involves believing a message and receiving a person. It results in a changed life, absolutely, and also includes a changing life of repentance. Back to verse number 3. It says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Now, everywhere else in Scripture, when you see that phrase and that language about coming like a thief in the night, it's talking about the second coming. 
For those of you that want to research it later, uh, like go, go ahead, you can go to Matthew chapter 24, verses 43 and 44. You'll find that in Luke chapter 12, verses 39 and 40. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is found in verse number 2 and verse number 4. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. And one more, Revelation chapter 16 verse number 15. So everywhere else it's talking about the second coming of Jesus. However, in proper context of what's being said here, It's not talking about the second coming. It's talking about the temporal judgment that God is going to bring upon the church. Think back to the the very first letter that we looked at, the church in Ephesus. Jesus told the Ephesian church that He would remove their lampstand, that He would close their church if they didn't repent. And then he says, with the sword of his mouth, he promised to judge the false teachers of Pergamum if they didn't repent. Here, they were commanded to to wake up from their spiritual slumber and to strengthen the few evidence of life that they still had. He then told them to remember, remember the gospel, keep it, and keep on repenting. He warned them that if they didn't heed his exhortation, then his judgment would come like a thief. In other words, his judgment upon the church was going to be sudden and very unexpected. But there's a a glimmer of hope. Because not everyone was lifeless within the congregation. Go back to verse number 4. It says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Oh, I love this verse. Because Christ does not ask those faithful few to leave the nominal majority. No, he tells them to maintain their presence as a faithful witness. Oh, they may have a difficult time doing so, but he tells them to maintain their presence. And then God, he commends them with a worthy of special praise. How does that fly in the face that we often see today? I'm telling you, I've had lots and lots of conversations with individuals who have left churches, right, because of the problem at a church. This dysfunction this or, or, or the issue. And sometimes God moves people from one place to the other. And I believe that with all of my heart. But sometimes God's call upon that person is not to leave a congregation, but rather stay and to remain and to teach the truth in the midst of a church that is broken in desperate need of truth. If we always left when there was problems, we're always going to be on the go. Because there's always going to be problems. Here, it was a busy, active church, and they thought that they were good. They were relying on the work of the past. And, and Jesus looks at it and said, No, you're not as good as you think you are. You're dying. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember the gospel, keep the gospel, and repent. 
want you to see the commitment that our Lord makes to them and ultimately to us. Look at verse number 5. He says that the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot out um, his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Threefold commitment from our Lord. First of all, he promises white garments. Promises white garments. The white garments represent the cleansing from sin, that cleansing that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. In verse number four, the image of walking in white is the promise of eternal, unblemished righteousness. So he promises the white garment. And then not only that, he promises the book of life. Notice he says, I will never, never, underline that, never, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. This is a beautiful picture of eternal security. Back in this time, what would typically happen, what would always happen ultimately, is when a person would die, their names would be erased from the registry of the city. So an individual dies, so they would erase their names from the database of that city. I want you to notice that God will never erase believers' names from the book of life. It is the eternal security of your salvation. And that eternal security has nothing to do with who we are. It has everything to do with Him. It just blows my mind. Those that kind of believe that you can lose your salvation over a sin. And I'm like, what sin is it that you commit that you lose it? Is it one sin? Is it a specific sin? Is somebody up and he got a book of life open? And it's like, oh, David, he screwed up. I erased his name. Oh, he did good. Okay, put it back in. Are they erasing and placing, erasing and placing, erasing and placing? No, it doesn't work like that. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Receive him as Lord and Savior. And your name's recorded in the book of life. And his word says, I will never blot out his name. Never. Now, this book of life is, is one of two books that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. Turn a few pages over to, to Revelation chapter 20. Let's go there real fast. Revelation chapter 20. There are two books mentioned. Beginning in verse number 12. It says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that's the other book. If your name's not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here in these passages, two books are mentioned. The book of life, 
which is made up of all the names of God's children. If you want to read more about the book of life, let me give you some more references right fast. Exodus chapter 32, verses 32 and 33. Psalm chapter 69, verse 28. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Luke chapter 10, verse number 20. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 3. You know why I give you all of these? Because I want you to be in your word. Don't just trust me because I'm saying it. Study God's word to check it to make sure it's right. There's more. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. Revelation chapter 13, verse number 8. Chapter 17, verse number 8. What we just read, chapter 20, verses 12 and verse 15. And then again in chapter 21, verse number 27. So we have the book of life that is made up of all the names of God's children. And then the other book is the book of deeds, or often called uh, the book of remembrance. This is the book that records the deeds uh, of both the righteous and the wicked. You can read about the book of deeds in places like Psalm chapter 56, verse number 8. Psalm 139, verse 16. Isaiah 65, verse 6. And Malachi chapter 3, verse number 16. Here Jesus, His commitment to those who believe in Him, to those who overcome, He promises the white garments. He promises that their names are never going to be blotted out of the book of life. And then the third promise is a beautiful promise. It is the promise, it's the confession of Christ. The text says, he says, I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. So in Christ, we have eternal acceptance and security. Think about it. One day, Jesus will stand side by side with those whose names are permanently written in the book of life. And he will stand before the author and creator of all of life. And he will declare before God Almighty, Daddy, this one's mine. This one belongs to me. But how beautiful is that? And and Jesus' message to the church who was relying on its past history was don't get settled. Don't be comfortable. Don't think you're all that. There's still more work that needs to be done. There's a world that is in desperate need of knowing Jesus Christ. We live in a wicked and perverse, not just world, not just nation, not just state, but in our county, it's all around us. People are in desperate need of Jesus. The life-changing power of the Word of God needs to be presented to them, needs to be shared with them. We must love one another enough to be willing to say, hey, let's talk. Can I show you a better way? 
Can I tell you about the one who loves me so much that it didn't matter what I did, didn't matter how often I did it, he loves me so much that if I just come to him, repent, confess, give my life to him, he warmly receives me. And he takes me in. And now I know that I'm eternally secure, not based on anything that I do, but all based upon his promise and his word. So I don't get settled with that. I don't begin to think, all right, so I'm in. So now it really doesn't matter what I do. I'll go do whatever I want to do. No, that's not how it works. The true evidence that we've had a life-changing experience with our Lord and Savior is seen in the works that we do. So we don't work for salvation. But those that are saved better get about working. Living out that salvation putting what God has placed in us with that Holy Spirit, that gifting, that how He's designed and created us to do good works. And it's walking in obedience to that. And there's no other place that I'd rather be than right here, right now, with this church. It's a beautiful church, a loving church. But if we're not careful, it's a church that looks back on its past and begins to not have a clear understanding of today. And today, we are surrounded by thousands upon thousands of individuals that are at home, they're lost, they're desperate, they're hopeless, they're helpless. They know it, or they don't know it. Either way, it's a dangerous place to be. And those that believe, those that know, then we need to wake Remember the good news. Keep the good news in our lives and be willing to share it with everyone else. Repenting all along. Because we're not perfect. We're going to mess up. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to go to God and ask for forgiveness. We're going to go to one another ask for forgiveness. And in love, we're going to say, it's okay. I forgive you. Let's move forward. So what is the one decision that you need to make in your life today? What's the one thing? There's not a perfect individual here, myself included. What is the one decision that you need to make today that will bring you in that closer fellowship with God? Is it a sin that needs to be confessed? Is it a, a, a declaration or decision that needs to be made? Is it a place of ministry that needs to be committed to? Is it a church membership that you'd like to join to become accountable one to another? Like, what's the one decision? I think we can all think of one. My prayer is that during this time of invitation, that we're not going to worry about what's happening around us, that we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to move within us, guiding us, encouraging us, convicting us in the areas that are necessary so that we can leave here in a proper relationship with the Father. Let's pray. Father, man, I love this place. What a great privilege it is to be here. Father, I pray that we don't get so settled in the routine of life, the routine of church, that, that it begins to lose its significance in us. God, I pray that we would have a great hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would have a great excitement to, to worship with one another, that we'd have a great eagerness to come and to receive your word. And so we'd open up the Word together. We'll take notes. We'll, we'll, we'll apply it to our lives. And in this time, Father, oh, there are all kinds of decisions that need to be made. 
And now we move into the great excuse moment where we make every kind of excuse not to make a decision right here and right now. God, may Satan not have victory over this time. But may you receive all the glory in this moment, Father. Help us. Guide us. Convict us. And encourage us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.